Lucas on Life. Hello, I'm Jeff Lucas, and this is Lucas on Life. And the Christian life, it seems, can be punctuated at times by doubt. Now, we've talked about doubt before on this show, but in thinking and praying about a theme for this week, I felt a nudge to return to it, not least because doubt is a subject that many Christians don't really want to talk about. We want to appear confident in our faith. But recently, there have been a number of reports of high-profile ministers and worship leaders who've actually abandoned their faith. One former leader of a large church in the USA is now actively involved in the humanist society. Let's face it, we're all living in a world of chaos right now, and prayer can at times seem rather futile. We've battled and we continue to live in a world blighted by COVID, and we've wept our way through news bulletins this week that show 10 million people displaced from their homes in Ukraine, with bodies lying unburied in the streets of Mariupol, and at least 90% of buildings destroyed or damaged there, while all of the time President Putin denies attacking civilians. And we can wonder, where is God in all of this? Does prayer make any difference? Is God there? Is he interested? So is doubt a normal experience for the Christian disciple? When I first became a Christian, I was bewildered when doubts came knocking. I read a poem by the Victorian wordsmith Alfred Lord Tennyson, who said, There lives more faith in honest doubt, believe me, than in half the creeds. He seemed to be saying that wrestling with faith, including navigating doubt, is actually part of faith. We're digging deeper facing our questions, not satisfied with a hand-me-down faith which we accept without thought, and we'll return to that idea later in the show. But then I read a scathing attack on Tennyson's idea. There lives more faith in honest doubt, said someone, believe me, than in half the creeds, so penned the poet, witless lout, to defend the doubter's doubtful deeds. Wow, that's pretty brutal. I believe that most Christians navigate seasons of doubt quite simply because we walk by faith, and that means that doubt can be part of the journey. And the Bible repeatedly chronicles the struggles of men and women of faith. God speaks to Abraham and Sarah, great people of faith, celebrated in the Scriptures, and yet they laughed at the thought of being parents at their great age. And then the New Testament speaks clearly to doubt, surely recognizing that we will experience it. Occasionally, I meet Christians who tell me that they never doubt, and forgive the play on words, I don't doubt them. But for the rest of us, let's acknowledge the struggle. So stay with me as we reflect just a little on doubt. When I first became a Christian, I thought that ministers never had to wrestle with doubt. They all seemed so shiny, so holy, and so very certain. I didn't realize that their vocational choice didn't guarantee them a doubt-free existence, which can make life difficult for them. It's rather hard to fulfill one's duties as a minister of the gospel while wondering if what we boldly proclaim as truth is actually true at all. Sorry, PCC but I'm going through an atheistic phase. Any chance of a couple of weeks off? Doubt is a mosquito that I can never quite kill, and if past performance is anything to go by, I will never successfully swat it this side of the New Jerusalem. Most of the time, 
doubt rumbles rather than roars, the vaguest trembling of the ground that I stand on, distant, irritating, troubling even, but not turbulent enough to create an earthquake that Richter would be interested in measuring. I don't lose my faith, I just mislay it occasionally. But then every now and again I have a full-on faith attack, which is more like a tsunami than an earthquake. Faith attacks strike without warning, and they're triggered by random happenings. Sometimes it's the superstitious statements that Christians come out with that make Christianity suddenly seem quite implausible, and for a moment the whole faith construct seems as rickety as a coffee table made by a fifth former in the woodwork class. You can't outgive God, someone says. Really? Then why not give every penny you possess and become utterly destitute, at least temporarily, if that's really true? Others say, God is absolutely in control. No, not as far as I can see it. He's not, at least not in the sense that everything that happens is because he wants it to. If that's not the case, then why do we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, if in a bizarre, k-sara-sara kind of way, everything that happens is because God wills it? Others say, things have gone wrong, so you must be doing something right. It's often trotted out by those who have an excessive view of spiritual warfare that may mean that Satan is in fact camping in my bathroom, a roaring lion crouched in the facilities. I'm healed, says the person, who very obviously isn't, but they say it because they think they're letting the side down if they don't. Or it can be a brush with death, which I had just recently with the passing of a very close relative who was one of the best parts of my growing up. When I heard of her death, the message of Easter, resurrection, seemed empty. I didn't feel comforted, but instead I felt that I was desperately trying to be hopeful, but it wasn't working. The possibility of there being another place, somewhere else in the universe, that she had travelled to, it all seemed about as likely as the Easter bunny being a real-life carrot-eater or Santa breaking speed records with his sleigh. Just wishful thinking. My faith wasn't rammed by a weighty locomotive filled with brilliant new atheistic arguments, but shattered by the hint of a satanic snigger. Surely doubting that God exists, or fearing that he's abandoned us if he does, is actually a fundamental part of the human condition. If I'd choreographed a Calvary event, I wouldn't have had Jesus crying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? as one of his last statements, even though prophecy was being fulfilled in that moment. But that didn't sound too good, did it, seeing as Jesus had announced that he and his father were one. Very bad as a parting shot, I'd say, and I'm not being irreverent in making that comment. I wonder what those who heard him say that made of it, without a team of forensic commentators standing by to explain it to all of us with three points of alliterated sermonic clarity. Perhaps Jesus was fully identifying with us in our lostness, bewilderment, and the feeling that heaven is ignoring us at times. On the cross, not only was he challenging the power of death, but identifying with us in the experience of hopeless, desolate life. Three days later, he rose to let us know once and for all that we are not abandoned or left destitute and that death itself is rendered incapable of separating us from love. And that leads me to another parting shot from Jesus. Before dying, he said, you've forsaken me. But before ascending to heaven, he promised, I'll never leave you. 
My occasional faith attacks, where are you God crises, doesn't mean that I'm a rubbish Christian. It's just that I'm another human being trying to get in step with what is true. One day, we'll see Jesus face to face and doubt will finally be banished. In the meantime, we don't enjoy that uncluttered, totally clear view. So if we occasionally doubt, it's just an indicator that we're not actually dead yet. Doubt is just part of the normal Christian journey, an unwelcome companion, but one that we need not fear. Doubt. There are days that are consistently tinged with irritation. We generally refer to them as one of those days. You know, you wake up with a headache, discover that the dog made a midnight snack of your new Ray-Bans, you miss the bus on the way to work, and you discover that your boss is actually a werewolf thinly disguised as a human being. Later in the day, which is layered with further minor frustrations, you're asked how you're doing. You make it official and mumble, all right, I suppose, just having one of those days. We all have them. Thomas, the disciple infamous for his capacity for doubt, had one of those days when he missed that meeting where the resurrected Jesus showed up. Who knows what he was up to that caused him to miss one of the greatest episodes in human history? Was he working on his taxes, visiting an elderly aunt, lunching with an old friend? Whatever it was, it caused him to miss that meeting of all meetings. And now, as the other disciples excitedly chattered on about the awesome experience that they'd just had, Thomas stoically assumed a posture not unlike that of Victor Meldrew, muttering, I don't believe it. He insists that unless he can be convinced that Jesus really is alive by sticking his fingers into his wounds, then unbelief is the barren place where he is going to park. So there. Thus, the Christian church, always quick on the draw with a labelling machine, has dubbed him Doubting Thomas, which I think is a tad unfair, because he certainly did doubt. Jesus gently rebuked him for it, but he was also a brave man who had shown willingness to die with Jesus if necessary. Because of his doubting, Thomas is unlikely to be a winner in the I'm a disciple, get me out of here popularity contest. It's Peter, impetuous and fragile, who usually wins hands down every time when favourite disciples are being listed. That water-walking fisherman whose sprint across the surf was terminated by a bolt of fear is someone we can so easily associate with. I sometimes picture him hopscotching behind Jesus on one foot because so often he had the other foot firmly planted in his mouth. James and John might be favourites with the more macho types who like action thrillers, seeing that they showed an indecent enthusiasm for violence and fiery judgement. Or Andrew, he might be a favourite of some because he was such a people person, immediately introducing his brother Peter to Jesus and then not getting irritated when his brother got nicknamed The Rock. He was kind, generous. Sharing the insight that a lunch of five loaves and the two fishes would not go far in feeding 5,000 chaps, he had a keen eye for detail. But strange though it seems, I'd like to give a shout out to Thomas as an unlikely hero among the disciples. And the reason is this. For Thomas, one of those days turned into one of those weeks. The repeated chatter between those who had seen Jesus must have been torturous for Thomas, setting his teeth on edge. 
we read the story of another appearance of Jesus to Thomas, and so we all know the happy ending. But for a while, he had no clue that that would happen. He had no promise that Jesus would ever appear again in a similar fashion. He may well have missed the meeting of his life, and a whole week went by, seven days for him in the Shadowlands. But then, of course, Jesus did arrive again, and this time Thomas was there, still showing up, his doubts at that point unresolved, his insecurities lingering, but he was there. And for that reason, Thomas is surely a wonderful inspiration. Woody Allen famously said that 90% of success is just showing up, and Thomas did just that. I don't think we give him enough credit for doing so. Thomas is surely the patron saint of those who are steering through the seasons when faith might seem ludicrous, but in the face of doubt, they still show up regardless. Sometimes Christians go through wilderness seasons of doubt and distance themselves from their churches because of it. As far as they're concerned, the songs feel hollow, the prayers seem meaningless, and they may even feel hypocritical because of their faith crisis. Surely, they reason, it's better to stay away. And that's quite wrong. Fellowship can give us a source of strength when the going gets tough, perhaps like right now. Unable to pray much, we allow ourselves to be carried along by the prayers of others. Liturgy gives us words of faith when life renders us speechless. The church is not the gathering of the strong, but the place where we huddle to find strength. Thomas showed up. And Thomas ended bravely, apparently martyred by spears at the command of an Indian king. His willingness to die for Jesus was no hollow promise. So, hooray for Thomas. And if you're trusting God and still clinging to Christian community through one of those days, one of those weeks, or even, God love you, one of those years, then a sincere, heartfelt, Hooray for you too. As we've been talking about doubt, let's utilize and affirm our faith once again. And as we do that, why don't we pray together and join the prayers surely of millions around the world as we lift up the people of Ukraine to the Lord. And as we do so, let's also pray for the people of Russia, many innocently suffering in their homeland, but some of them being victimized and even bullied here in the UK, disturbing reports coming in about that. May we as the people of God model kindness, compassion, and care in these days of conflict and pain. Join me in prayer. Father, once again, we cry out to you for peace. We pray for resolution. We pray for the people of Ukraine, so many of them displaced, wounded, killed, suffering grief and loss. Strengthen them, we pray. We pray for innocent people in Russia who are feeling the heat of sanctions right now, which is making their lives extremely difficult. We pray for truth to penetrate lies. We pray for the leaders of the nations that you will speak, that you will reveal yourself, that you will show up in this crisis. Finally, we pray for ourselves that in these days, we may truly stand firm on the evil day. And having done all, we will stand not only in truth, but in love 
kindness, grace, and unwavering faith and prayer. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. See you next week. Lucas on Life. 